specifically today, what we're going to be looking at is the role of the church in the midst of the darkness of suffering. We just sang about um, how God's presence meets us in our suffering and turns what was intended for harm, what was intended for pain, what was intended for evil, and turns it into something good, something we would praise God for. Typically, when we think about suffering, we ask big questions about where is God and why is this happening to me and what did I do wrong? And, and today, really, the question we're asking is, what is the role of the church, the believers, the Christians, the saints, those who are part of the church, those who are in Christ, what is our role in the midst of someone else's suffering? And so we're going to go to Luke chapter 10. I want to read the entire passage this morning, and then we will get started. Starting in verse 25 of Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, that's Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. As we step into this conversation today about the role of the church in the midst of the darkness of suffering, I wanna start with just kind of laying some groundwork here. First of all, um, in, the, in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, you're gonna come across a couple different words. And when you come across the word neighbor, especially in the phrase, love your neighbor, um, something very specific is meant. So when the Bible refers to neighbor, what is meant by that is any human being you come in contact with. Any human being in the proximity of your life is your neighbor. Regardless of whether you know them or not, regardless of whether or not you like them, Regardless of what color of skin they have or what language they speak, what socioeconomic background they have, regardless of what their situation is, if you come in contact with a human being, that person is your neighbor. 
Now, in a very specific way, the Bible talks about brothers, and the Greek word means brothers and sisters. And anytime that word comes up in the New Testament, what's meant by that is that you would think of those who are in Christ, the church. And there are very specific commands given to you and me in the way that we interact with one another, and specifically the way that we love one another. You know, for example, Hebrews talks about, do not forsake gathering together. That command is for the people of Christ. Another place, Paul talks about um, stirring one another up to good deeds. Well, that's meant for the body of Christ. That command is meant for you and I to stir one another up to good deeds. And so as we think about today, what's being asked here, who is my neighbor? Um, Really what we need to be thinking about is any human being inside or outside the church that we come in contact with. You with me? And so this is where we're going today. Now, We've got two stories here. We've got a story, a real story of Jesus encountering a lawyer who's asking some really great questions. And essentially the question is, Jesus, how do I get into heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? And so Jesus begins to interact with this man and and it, it turns out this man at least cognitively knows the answer to the question, right? But then he follows up with another question. He wants to know specifically, well, Jesus, well, if that's true, I need to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, and my neighbor is myself. I need you to help me understand then who is my neighbor. And so we pick this back up then in verse 30 where Jesus replies to him. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place that saw him, he passed by on the other side. So to understand where Jesus is going in this story, he's describing a really hard journey um, from, but that, that was between Jerusalem and Jericho, okay? This is an 18-mile hike, that was about 3,000 feet difference in elevation. This is big time. You don't know how much hiking you've done. One of the longest, the longest hike that I've done in one day is 18 miles, okay? And it was a really difficult journey. Matter of fact, if it, if it could have been less, I would have chosen less. But the problem was I couldn't stop until I got to the end, okay? And so I'm trying to imagine this journey uh, from town to town. To take this journey meant you were, you, you were on a very specific errand. That you didn't just go for a walk and take this journey. Not only was it long, lengthy, had a lot of elevation change, it was rocky, uh, it, was, it was very rough. There were lots of places to slip and get hurt. But not only that, it was known for a place to get ambushed. So you can imagine this lengthy journey. There were a lot of places for, for, for robbers to hide, right? And not only that, um, the people traveling this journey were weary, were tired, worn out, looking for some shade, looking for a place to rest, probably in their minds and begin to kind of zone out and drift away and think about other things, just one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. So it was, it was just prime, a prime location to get jumped. So Jesus says, here's this journey, and this guy's taking a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's 3,000-foot elevation change, 18-mile journey, and somewhere along the way, he got jumped. And the people who jumped him, they robbed him. They took everything he had, they stripped him, and they beat him, and they left him half dead, or almost dead, or as good as dead. Okay? Now, the first two people who pass by are significant to the story. The first person who passes by is a priest. 
Okay, so this is a, for the nation of Israel, this is a descendant of Aaron, the first priest. And generation after generation, the priests were the ones who were the mediators between the people and God. And they would go into the temple and offer sacrifices on behalf of the brokenness and the sinfulness of the people of God. So this was a, this was a religious leader, a high-profile spiritual leader in the nation of Israel. But not only that, a Levite passes by. So the Levites were descendants of Levi, and their job was to assist the priest in the act of worship. So you might think of this person as like the worship leader. So you've got the lead pastor and the worship leader, and they come across this guy who's been jumped, stripped, robbed, beaten, left for dead, and what was their response? They passed by, didn't just pass by, but passed by where? On the other side of the road. As they walked by, this person left for dead. There's some reasons why you might think, well, here's probably what they were thinking. So for the nation of Israel, if you came in contact with somebody who was bleeding or dirty, they were considered unclean. And if you touched them, then you would become spiritually unclean. And so that might be part of what was going on in the mind of the priest, in the mind of the Levite. It's not gonna, I'd like to help you, buddy, but if I touch you, I'm unclean, and then I can't help anybody else. Or it might have been out of sight, out of mind. If I just don't make eye contact with you, if I don't notice the person on the side of the road who's in need, I just focus on where I'm going, maybe move over to the other side, then I won't feel guilty for passing them by. There may have been a little bit of all of that going on. We don't fully know, but we do know is that the high-profile spiritual leaders passed this guy by and left him for dead. I want to bring up for a minute just a little bit about the misconceptions about spiritual leaders um, in the church, both at this point in time and in the, in, in the church today. You know, this idea that those who are pastors and elders or spiritual leaders are somehow um, esteemed to this position because of how good and how righteous and how moral they are. It's a misconception, right? This idea that, well, that person's a pastor, that person's a worship leader, that person's a missionary, so I know where to go if I need something. I go to this person because they're closer to God than me. They've got it together, Man, what a misconception. I'll just use my life as an illustration of this. I, I don't stand here before you today doing what I'm doing right now because of my moral righteousness. It wasn't like God came to me as a young man and noticed me and went, wow, look at how good he is. I need him on my team. I mean, look at his generosity, his compassion, his morality. Ooh, there's one I can use one day. Look at how eloquent he is as he stands up in front of people and speaks. I need him on my team. Matter of fact, actually, it was the opposite of that. God came to me and looked at me and said, I see your frailty, and I see your rebellious heart. I see your desire to serve self above others. I see how nervous you get when you get up in front of people and speak. And so for those reasons, I'm going to call you and use you despite you. And so the goodness that comes out of a spiritual leader's life, if there's any goodness at all, we see an example where there's no goodness coming out. If there's any goodness that comes out of my life or a spiritual leader's life, it's the goodness of Christ. It's the flow of God's goodness, his mercy and his grace coming to us and through us. You don't want more of me. I'm serious, you don't. That goes for all of our elders here all of our staff members here. 
You want more of Christ that is in us. And so here we see Jesus illustrating that when we put our hope in high-profile spiritual leaders, it's no help of all, no help at all. Whatever it means to be the light in the midst of the darkness of sufferings, if we put our hope in spiritual superstars, the world is doomed. Now, you may be sitting there going, I'm so glad I'm not a pastor. But listen, this applies to people who think they have it all together as well. Regardless of what your title is, if, if we put our hope in those who have it together, we're doomed. Here's why. Nobody has it together. There's no one righteous, not even one. And like maybe you're here today and you've been carrying that burden of trying to convince people that you have it together spiritually and morally and you walked in today carrying that heavy burden for the first time you're like, I don't have to pretend to be better. No, no. Like maybe for you, today would be the day you set that burden down. Listen, if, if, if for the church, if our hope is found in um, this idea, we need people who have it together, listen, we're doomed. I think that's what's being illustrated here in the story. Jesus is saying, listen, the hope in the midst of suffering is not gonna be found in those spiritual rock stars out there. The pastor, those who want you to think that they have it all together, the hope of the light of the gospel is gonna be found in somebody else. Enter the third person, the good Samaritan. And so the Samaritan comes by. Now think about this. Just for a minute, try to imagine the desperation of the man left half dead. He has no clothes, he has no possessions, no resources, he's wounded, he's broken. He's probably laboring to breathe. He's in a position where if the sun goes down on him tonight on the side of the road, he probably won't be around to watch it come back up. Think about that. And the closer it gets to dark, the less frequent travelers are. And as each person passes by, his hope diminishes little by little. He sees a priest. Surely this man will help me. He's a holy man. He's a spiritual man. And the priest passes him by. Well, that's okay, because there's a Levite coming in the distance. And those Levites, they're men of God. And surely this man will stop and give me drink and maybe even give me a ride into town. And the Levite passes him by. And with each passing person in each passing hour, his hope is diminishing. Enters the Good Samaritan. Now before we talk about what the Good Samaritan did, let's talk about who this person is. So Samaritans in this culture were outcasts. They were oftentimes referred to by the nation of Israel um, as half-breeds, people who were unclean. So it didn't, like, you just didn't invite this person over for dinner, because if you do, you'd have to spiritually cleanse your house afterwards. It wasn't the kind of person that the nation of Israel would let their children go hang out with because they consider them so unclean. And this is the very person who comes by. So not a spiritual leader, not a person who has it together, a person who culture would have considered an outcast comes by. And now this person sees the man stripped, beaten, left for dead, right? And we're wondering what's gonna happen now. Is, is he likewise gonna move to the other side of the street to make it around this guy and continue his journey? Or is he gonna do something different? 
And Jesus says, this guy does something different. Rather than moving away, he leans in and he moves towards the guy and has what? Compassion. I want to look for a minute at some of the things that Jesus describes that this man did. Looking at verse 34, the Samaritan, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So you got a guy here who has a very specific reason why he's moving from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's on a journey. He's got an animal with him. Maybe he's riding the animal, got his stuff packed on. Maybe he's headed to sell something or maybe he's headed back from selling something. He's on a journey, a very difficult journey, by the way. He's on the same 18-mile journey that the priest was on, that the Levite was on, that the beaten man was on. He's on the same journey, and he leans into this guy who's, who's beaten on the side of the road. And the first thing he does is what? He binds up his wounds. So some of you in the room, you're like medical people, and some of you watching at home, like you may be a nurse or a doctor. And so when you see open wounds, you're weird. You're drawn to that. The rest of us are not right? So we see blood, we see broken bones, we see wounds. We're calling you to come dress the wound. But this guy has nobody. There is no 911. It's either this guy or nothing. And so the Samaritan, not only he comes over to this guy and has compassion, but he's going to roll up his sleeves, get blood on his hands, and dress this man's wounds. Probably didn't have a first aid kit. He's probably ripping pieces of his garment to wrap these wounds, didn't have water, extra water laying around. So what he? He washes the wounds with wine. It's expensive. He's dressing the wounds with oil, wrapping these wounds probably with his own garment. He's pressing in. He's saying, you know what? You're in the trenches. You're broken. You're bloody. I'm willing to get broken and bloody too to help you. So he binds up his wounds. Well, what's the next thing he does? He's like, man, I got to get you into town. Well, you obviously can't walk. I can. So guess what? You get my animal. You get my animal. He takes him in. He loads him up on the animal, probably a donkey. And he begins now to do the hard work. He begins to take the hard journey, walking for a man who can't walk, right? Could have said, man, I'm going to send some help back for you. Me and my donkey, we're out of here. Nope. I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to walk and put you on the donkey and carry you into town. It takes the guy into town and takes him to the inn, this place of rest, this place where this guy's wounds can heal. Like he's not out of the woods yet, is he? His wounds have been dressed, but now they need to heal. So he goes to the innkeeper. Not only does he bring him into this place of rest, this place of healing, what does he do? He says, hey, listen, everything that this man owes you up until now, it, it's, I'm paying for it, it's on me. But everything else that comes up going forward, that's on me too. So not only does he usher him into this, this inn, this place of rest and healing, the Samaritan says, I'm paying the price that this man can't pay. Think about that. If you're the innkeeper, the Samaritan comes dragging this bloody, broken, beaten man in and puts him up in a bed, and it's like, who's gonna pay for that? And the Samaritan's like, well, he can't pay you because he doesn't have any money left. It all got stolen. But here's what I need you to understand. It's on me. Everything that is required to care for him is on me. And when I come back, I will pay you in full. And so Jesus tells this story to the lawyer 
And then at the end, he says, lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Since that's what you're tripping up on is the idea of who your neighbor is. Which one of these guys do you think was the neighbor? And the lawyer said, well, that third guy, that's who, that, that guy was the neighbor. And this is where Jesus answers him and says, okay, you're right. Now you go and do likewise. Now there's this beautiful connection between loving God and loving neighbor. That's where this story starts, right? How do I get into heaven? I don't know. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says I need to love God and he loved my neighbor. Jesus, you're right, absolutely. Now go and do that. And the guy's like, okay, before I go do that, I need some help here. What does it look like to love my, who's my neighbor? And that's, what, that's where this story comes from. And what I want you to see is this beautiful connection between loving God and loving neighbor. They're very interwoven, very interdependent on one another. They're not mutually exclusive. So it's not two separate ideas. What's being, like, think about even how the Old Testament is structured. Do you know the Ten Commandments? What are the first, ten, or the first of the Ten Commandments have to do with? Loving God. Have no other gods before me. Make no carved images. Only worship me. Protect the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And then, that's our relationship with God. Then what? Love your neighbors yourself. Don't covet your neighbor's possessions. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Like, so our relationship with God, our, our love towards God, if it's genuine and sincere, will be reflected in how we love one another. Not one or the other. Like you can't, you can't say, hey, I love God. Like I truly do. Everything that I have, all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, absolutely. Check the box, I'm in. My problem is I just don't love people. Right? And you can't flip that either and say, well, I'm not in on God. That whole spiritual stuff, I'm out on it. I don't understand it. It makes me uncomfortable. Just don't believe in it. But I love my fellow man. Right? Because Jesus would push back on both of those and say, no, 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 no. Because if you love God with everything that you are and you know the love of Christ, you can't help but to love your neighbor well. And not only that, you can't go out into the world and give away something you don't have. So I applaud you for your intentions of wanting to be compassionate and kind towards others, but you're not gonna love anybody well if you don't first know the love of God. You've got no well to draw from in which to give away. And so these two things are, are connected to each other. And here's why I'm saying that. Go back to the story. Before you and I can ask the question, where am I in the story? Where's the church at in this story? We have to first understand the story of the Good Samaritan is about Jesus. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Not you, not me. That's the point of the story. Jesus is the one who comes along and finds you half dead on the side of the road, no resources. And if the sun goes down on you, you won't live to see another day. Jesus is the one who sees you and I broken and bloody. He says, you know what? I'm willing to roll up my sleeves. I'm willing to get blood on my hands. I'm willing to meet you in your brokenness. And yeah, it's gonna be ugly, but I love you that much. You need, you, I'll tear off my garment to, to bandage your wounds. Isaiah 53 says that our wounds are healed by his stripes, his beating. So when Jesus is getting beaten at the cross, he's, he's healing our wounds. And think about that. Not only that, Jesus was the one willing to take the hard journey in our place, right? So even though this guy's wounds are bandaged up, he still can't walk. So somebody's gotta take his place. Only one person can ride the animal. 
Jesus is the one who steps down from his throne of glory and says, I will take the hard journey you can't take for yourself that leads to the cross. I'll take the journey of suffering. You ride. And Jesus carries us to the cross and bears our sin and our shame, which you and I don't have the strength to bear on our own. And knowing that, Jesus has, in fact, ushered us into a kingdom of healing. Do you understand what the kingdom of God on the earth is today? It's the church. This is the end in the story. We're the place, right, for Jesus to bring people into this place to find rest and to find healing. And Jesus says to us, to you, to me, don't worry about it, I'll pay their price. I've paid the price for you, and I will pay the price for them. I've paid the price for everything that has happened in your life up until this point, and guess what? I'll pay the price for everything that is to come. All past sins, all future sins, it's paid in full. When I come back, it's paid. And so first and foremost, the story of the Good Samaritan is about Jesus. Jesus has healed our wounds. And now he comes to us, not just the lawyer. He says, church, listen, I need you to go do the same. I need you to be willing to get blood on your hands, dirt on your hands, sweat on your hands. Church, listen, to meet people in darkness, it's, it's, it's ugly, it's dirty, and it's hard. You don't believe me? Step into a marriage that's, that's on life support. Step into a marriage that's like drawing its last breath, and you're gonna, you're gonna encounter some ugly stuff. Right? So as the church, we have to ask, are we gonna be the priest and the Levite who walk on the other side of the road from that marriage? Throw them a bottle of water? Wish you well. Good luck with that. Hope we see you in Jerusalem. Or are we gonna be the Samaritan who says, you know what? Christ came to us in our brokenness. Listen, I'm gonna step into this situation <laughs> and it's gonna get ugly. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be bloody. But as a church, right, that's what it means to be the light in the midst of the darkness of suffering. To meet people in their addictions, to meet people in their darkest hour, to meet people in their brokenness, to meet people in their depression, to meet people in their anxiety, to meet people in their entrapment and sin and say, listen, I'm gonna meet you where you are and I may get dirty, that's okay. I'm gonna roll up my sleeves just like Jesus did and I'm gonna be the light in the midst of your darkness right now. And so first and foremost, this is a story about Jesus and he turns to the lawyer and he turns to us as the church and says, now you go do likewise. You go do likewise. Listen, church, we are not a hotel. We are a hospital. This is a place for the spiritually sick. Jesus said in Matthew 5, church, you are a light, the light of the world. Not a light of the world. You're the light of the world. If there's gonna be light in the darkness of this world, the world's gonna see it through you. You're the light of the world. And then what does he follow it up with? Just like a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Think about that, church. Here's what that means for us. As you and I interact with the world around us and we encounter our neighbors, right? No human being who encounters us should have to look very far to see the light. Think about that co-worker finds himself in desperation, brokenness, suffering, and they think, I need somebody to pray with me. They shouldn't have to look far to see the light of the church. Think about that person who you're, you're encouraging right now in life, maybe witnessing to and trying to lead to Christ, and maybe month after month, year after year, and you're like, there's no movement. It's okay, keep doing it. Why? Because there's gonna come a day of suffering where they're on the side of the road and they've got no hope left. Your neighbors who live in your neighborhood, when they hit that place of suffering, they should not have to look far to find the church. 
That's what it means to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You with me? Jesus says, church, listen, I need you to go and do likewise. Why? Because you are the light of the world. I need you to be like a city on a hill. Can't be hidden. Listen, guys. First of all, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you don't consider yourself part of the church, I hope today that something has awakened inside of you and you're like, whoa, I've never heard Jesus described that way. Like, I, I hope that today you've heard something refreshing, invigorating, and stirring within you. are like, man, I want to have a relationship with God like that. I want to know the Jesus who comes to me in my suffering and, and binds up my wounds. Listen, you can have that relationship today before you leave, whether you're here, you're watching at home, whether you're in Fort Worth or on the East Coast, wherever you are right now. You need to hear this. Jesus doesn't walk to the other side of the road. He comes to you. All you have to do is bow your heart in faith and say, listen, I believe. I need to be healed. I need forgiveness. I need a relationship with this God. And Jesus comes to you by faith, by your faith. Just lavishes you with grace, forgiveness, and mercy. Draws you in. But if you're here today and you're part of the church, this is what I need us to hear. Listen, Solid Rock Church. We are supposed to be engaging the world around us in sacrificial love on a consistent basis, not just when we see a need arise. We are supposed to be so engaged in sacrificially loving the world around us that in the midst of suffering, we shine like this to the community around us. Think about that. That's more than, hey, if you encounter somebody suffering, are you willing to help out? I hope the answer is yes. But we're actually supposed to be so engaged in the suffering of the world around us, sacrificially loving our neighbor, that we shine like a beacon of hope to this community. Like, that's what Jesus is doing at Solid Rock Church or nothing. I know it's a big statement. This is what he is doing. And if you are here today, you are in Christ. You have tasted the goodness and the mercy of God. Jesus is saying, you go do likewise. I didn't save you just for you. I saved you that I might work through you. That love that you received from me, I want to bend it out to the world around you. That you might love your neighbors. That you might shine like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You're going to get a chance to hear um, uh, a testimony from a couple in our church now, a very young couple who's walked through some really hard stuff already in life, and uh, Shane and Caleb Belter are going to share their story with you, and what's so difficult about trying to capture a story in like eight minutes and play it on a video is there's just so much that gets left out, so you're going to hear about um, a really dark season that they walked through, a season of suffering, and how the church came around them, you're going to hear bits and pieces of that, I just encourage you, when you run into them, Ask more, because there is so much more that God did uh, through the church for this family during a time of suffering and darkness. But you're gonna get to hear um, just a little bit of their story today. Before we do that, I wanna pray right now, pray for you, pray for us. Let's join our hearts together now before we watch the video. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy, God, that, that, that run us down, that chase us down all throughout life. Father, thank you for the way that you have come to us like the good Samaritan goes to the, the broken, 
beaten, left for dead man. Thank you for coming to us like that, to bandage our wounds, to take the hard journey for us, to usher us into this kingdom of healing and for paying the price for our sins. Jesus, we praise you for that. And we pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you in that way, that before they leave here today, that we take that step of faith to trust in you or maybe even come grab a pastor. And Father, we're praying this over Solid Rock Church. God, it's, it's this or nothing. It's this or nothing. We wanna be like a city on a hill to this community. God, to be anything less is to, is to be less than what you've called us to be. We want to become a light of hope in the midst of the darkness around us, Jesus. Help us to do that. We pray this all in your powerful name. Amen. Hi, church. Uh, my name is Shane Belter. This is my wife, Kayla. Uh, we have two kids, Bradley and Hallie. Uh, we've been coming to Solid Rock now for about a year and a half. Um, we get the privilege of leading a young adult uh, community group, um, and I'm also serving on the leadership team. I grew up uh, in a military family. Uh, my dad was in the Navy, so we moved around uh, all over the country. Uh, ended up in San Diego, um, is where I went to middle school and high school. Um, in high school is where I met my wife, Kayla. Uh, we started dating sophomore year of high school. Uh, we were both really involved in our youth group, um, and that's when I really felt God calling me into uh, to ministry and really wanting to serve um, in some sort of, uh, of role uh, within the church. Um, and so when we graduated high school, uh, we both wanted to, uh, to go to Biola, to a, the Bible Institute of LA, um, and I went in and started studying um, theology. The Lord both led us back to San Diego, um, and uh, about two months later is when I proposed, um, and we uh, were engaged. Um, I was, had just turned 19, Kayla had, was still 18, um, so young. Shortly after we were married, uh, we were uh, involved with a church plant. We were on a church planting team uh, in northern San Diego, uh, and we got to serve in lots of different roles, uh, starting from just meeting in the living room, um, and then moving into a building and, and into a school. Um, and so just having that, that time of, of just seeing the church grow and, and putting, getting a chance to wear lots of many hats uh, with within the church leadership uh, was, a, was a huge blessing in our life. Um, and it's in that group and in that context where I moved into the, the next season of life of... Um, so in July of 2013, um, I found out um, that and had been diagnosed with testicular cancer. Um, it was way, uh, it was out of the blue. Um, you know, I had went in for some scans um, on a Wednesday, not really thinking anything of it. Um, and I was on a boat Friday morning with a buddy up in Central California um, and got a call um, right at 8 a.m. We had been fishing for about two and a half hours and not caught anything. Um, and it was somebody on the line saying, uh, you need to go to the hospital right now, have chest x-rays, blood work done, and you have a doctor's appointment Monday morning at 10 a.m. Um, so that was the first time I had ever been given a doctor's appointment, uh, not, you know, asked my availability, but you have a doctor's appointment at 10 a.m. And then said goodbye. Um, and I was like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. We had, you know, we had just actually caught a fish and I handed the rod to my buddy and he's looking at me like, what's going on just by my face? Um, and I 
we leave then and we go back to, to Kayla and I, I break the news to her and, and those um, that's when the initial uh, kind of shock was just there of just so much uncertainty and fear of, of not knowing what it meant um, or what it was um, at that point <clears throat> and so and so I'm that whole weekend was just um, a lot of unknown a lot of uncertainty a lot of time spent in, just with my wife before the Lord just just crying and not knowing what's going on um, and I think that's the, the biggest thing of, of that darkness there was just the unknown um, and, and when you're facing any type of health di diagnosis is, is the the what if um, the unknown so we we go in and, uh, on Monday and I get that stuff done and, and I you know, I sit down with uh, the doctor um, and she says uh, you have um, multiple masses um, and that we need to to go in and, and remove it um, and you're gonna have surgery on Friday went in and had a uh, surgery on that that Friday um, and one of the biggest questions was are we gonna be able to still have kids um, was a huge um, of part of this um, is because she said she didn't know after the surgery uh, they, they said that they had they taken out multiple masses um, and um, they had done a, a CAT scan, which had shown uh, a spread, and so they did, an, they did a, a CAT scan and, a, and a, a PET scan, and both of those showed swelling and lymph nodes, um, and the doctor told me that there was going to be, um, I was going to need a retroperineal lymph node dissection, uh, which is they were going to take out all the lymph nodes on my right side, I was going to be in the hospital for a couple weeks, have three to four months of intensive chemo um, and then uh, I would definitely be sterile. Um, that process would uh, not allow us to have children. Um, so um, that was a, a huge blow. We're about two months out now, met with the, the uh, got an MRI and then went in and met with the oncologist to schedule to get my port put in. Uh, for chemo um, and he said that my latest scan was everything was normal um, and that the, there was no more enlarged lymph nodes um, and that I wouldn't need any further treatment um, and so it was you know we had multiple scans that showed that I had the cancer had spread um, and then another scan showed that it, it hadn't um, and so it's just a, a miracle and, and it praise God that it, it happened that way. And there was so many times of prayer uh, with me and my wife, so many times of prayer with the elders of the church, um, just laying hands on, on me. Um, one of uh, my good friend's uh, wife uh, was going through breast cancer at the time as well. Um, so there was a lot of, of, of hurt and pain within the leadership of the church. Um, and just pouring over us and praying over us. Coming out of that, you know, they, they said I was, I was cancer-free, um, which was amazing, um, but they still didn't know that we were gonna be, out, be able to have children. Um, just based on every, uh, the, the surgery, based on the cancer, um, if it was gonna come back, um, and what, how that was gonna affect our fertility. Um, and so, um, you know, I was 21, when we were going through this. Uh, we had only been married for about a year. Um, and so we just decided to start trying. Um, we weren't definitely in a financial spot 
to have kids or really even get married ever. But God was always faithful and provided for us in, in amazing ways. Um, and that we can get into that crazy story another time. But um, we started trying um, and not knowing what was going to happen or if we were going to be able to have kids. Um, and we found out in February of that next year um, that Kayla was pregnant. Um, in Mark 10, 27, it says, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And so that was just a huge kind of exclamation point on the whole experience that God had a plan and a purpose for that darkness and that pain, um, and that He was with us the whole time, um, and that even when I felt uncertain, He was certain. Um, and so that was just kind of that, that sweet moment from God saying, I'm still in control, um, and you know, blessing us in that with, with our son. Um, and we also have a daughter as well that came a couple of years later. Um, so God has been so faithful to us through, um, through the dark times and the good times. And he used um, the church uh, that we are a part of um, to, to just shine that light into our lives. Um, and so really just feeling the church being that light to us and, and, and for us um, when it wasn't something that was evident at the time. Um, but we saw how much God has worked in and through that ever since.